We stand upon the brink of a precipice. We peer into the abyss. We grow sick and dizzy. Our first impulse is to shrink from the danger. Unaccountably, we remain. So wrote the great American poet Edgar Allan Poe. And that sense of being in stasis at a moment of crisis, frozen, unmoving as the danger looms before us, feels uncomfortably familiar if you cast your mind back just a year from now. On February the 12th, 2020, a year ago today, the first case in London of the new coronavirus was confirmed. The disease it caused in humans had only just been given its official name, COVID-19. Three days later, Europe's first coronavirus death was announced. Those were such surreal times, weren't they? We watched with bemusement as the Chinese authorities struggled to contain this mystery disease. The strict lockdowns they enforced seemed otherworldly, impossible to imagine in a modern society, in any society really. We watched the disease rip through that stricken cruise liner off the coast of Japan, British holidaymakers cheerful but trapped in their rooms. We watched the first cases spread slowly across Asia, drip, drip, drip into Europe, then finally into the UK. Did we have any sense of what was coming? Did we grow sick and dizzy as we peered into the abyss? I'm not sure. I just had a look back at my diary for February 2020. It's full of coffees and lunches with MPs and other contacts in crowded cafes and restaurants. A hop over to Brussels on the Eurostar with the Mayor of London. A haircut as an actual barber's. I remember laughing about coronavirus. Laughing about it. With some of the Mayor's staff on the Eurostar back. Was it true they might have to cancel the Tokyo Olympics because of this coronavirus thing in Asia? Could London really have to step in and host the Games? No chance. Of course the Olympics were going ahead. The focus here was the local election in May. But others realised the whole world was indeed standing on the edge. Here's Professor Neil Ferguson on the Today programme on February the 8th, 2020. I think we're in the early phases of a global pandemic at the moment. The fact we've only reported eight cases in this country is just because our surveillance is focused on travellers. We think probably we're picking up maybe one in three cases coming into the country at the current time. It's a mark of how epidemiology has rocketed to the top of the news agenda that one year on, Professor Ferguson needs little introduction. One of the world's most esteemed modellers of the spread of disease, he became an ubiquitous figure as the pandemic unfolded last year. It was his computer model which helped convince Boris Johnson his mitigation strategy in those crucial early days was so badly misjudged and that massive restrictions on people's movement were the only viable option. It was he who was dubbed Professor Lockdown on The Andrew Marr Show and he who was forced to quit as a government advisor when he was himself caught breaking lockdown rules. His work is lauded around the world and draws harsh criticism too from those opposed to lockdowns. I spent the best part of an hour in Professor Ferguson's company on Wednesday afternoon, and he offered fascinating insights into how he expects the next months of the pandemic to unfold. My best guess is, though, my fervent hope is, certainly by this time next year, we will be basically back to normal. We talked about the scale of the disease in Britain. A larger portion of the population has been naturally infected, and we think that might be up to a third of the UK population now, certainly 30% or so. His regrets about how it was handled last year. I think the wake-up call really came from Italy and what happened then. The threats he receives from trolls and Covid denialists. 
I get some fairly unpleasant emails from time to time. I've never quite felt physically threatened as yet, but there hasn't been much opportunity to. I mean, we're all locked down. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard. And this week on Westminster Insider, we're inviting you to meet the epidemiologist Professor Neil Ferguson and take a glimpse at what the future might hold. Professor, at the start of this year, coronavirus death rates have soared as high as they'd ever been. Christmas had just been cancelled for millions of us. We're entering a third national lockdown. And yet, it kind of felt like things were looking up. The vaccines are here, rollout's going well, it's going amazingly well. Uh, And a lot of people were starting to think that life might just be returning to normal in the UK by the spring or at least by, you know, the early summer. But with all these new variants of the virus now, the South African one, the Brazilian one, the UK one, somehow the prospect of society reopening in the next few months feels a bit less certain. So how big a setback is what's happened in the last couple of weeks? So I think it's too early to tell in the last couple of weeks in the South African variant. Undoubtedly, just the rise of what we colloquially call the British new variant has set us back a lot. I mean, that alone is responsible for probably half the deaths we've seen in the pandemic now, the half which occurred in the last eight weeks. So, I mean, it's been devastating both in terms of health impacts, but also in terms of looking forward and requiring that third lockdown and the delay to um, getting out of it again. I think in terms of additional new variants, the one I'm most concerned about it's not a single variant, it's a single mutation. It's the E484K, which is the one which has been called a variant of concern in Bristol. But it's also the thing which makes the Brazilian and South African strains different from our new strain. So that would be of concern if it starts to rise to high levels. I think in practical terms, though, all we can do is attempt to suppress it the sort of testing strategies being rolled out and watch very carefully. I think in other respects, we're in a better place than I might have anticipated a month ago. The lockdown has really driven down cases quite fast. They're basically halving about every 17 days at the moment or so. That means in a month's time, Prime Minister has talked about potentially reopening schools. We might have some bandwidth to do that, at least primary schools. And if we continue to see then a continued decline without large outbreaks, then perhaps starting to relax other aspects of society the following month. So I think it'll be a bumpy road and this pandemic has proved anything but predictable. So I would be a fool to try and predict out six months. But I think we will start to see things become easier just because the vaccine is going to start having an impact as well as relying on social distancing. You said last month that you hope that once maybe 80 or 90% of the over 50s and other clinically vulnerable groups have been vaccinated, we would start to see society reopen. Is that still your view or has the arrival of new variants, even since the UK variant, changed that? That's still my view. We've got very high coverage, better than I could have hoped for in the over 70s of above 90%, 95% in the over 80s. And that's very good news because the vaccines are not perfect, but clearly being vaccinated with any vaccine is better than not being vaccinated. So we should be seeing a a significant level of protection coming through and driving down deaths and hospitalizations in the coming weeks. And there are some early hints of that from some early analysis. Next is how much we can drive down transmission overall. And that is less certain. 
We don't know how effective these vaccines really are against stopping transmission. But in any case, that will rely on on adults being vaccinated, initially the over 50s, but then rolling out hopefully by the summer to the entire adult population. That's the scenario where we can really start talking about going back to normal because the combination of people being protected from severe disease and the reduction of transmission generated by the vaccine should keep the kind of clinical burden, the number of deaths and, and hospitalizations from COVID far, far lower than we're still seeing today. As you know, we're expecting to see all the vulnerable, the main vulnerable groups vaccinated by the end of April. They're already seeing the Prime Minister starting to come under pressure from certain politicians, commentators, scientists who were never big fans of lockdown in the first place to start to unlock very quickly. Have they got a point or is there a danger of once again Britain moving too quickly here? Well, I'm hoping some lessons have been learned. I mean, the most cautious strategy, and given the UK is the country now with, if not the highest per capita death toll, then one of the very highest, I would feel much more comfortable with a strategy which makes one change and then watches what happens for probably a minimum of three weeks. And then we start to see a signal of the effect of that change and then goes on to the next change. I still think, despite that caution, though, certainly by May, we hopefully will be in a place much more like you know, back last October, for instance, rather than the ever-intensified social distancing we've seen since October onwards. Most people's older parents and grandparents by that stage will have been fully vaccinated. Is there any reason we won't be having them around for tea and hugs and all the rest of it? I think that will critically depend on what we actually find real-world effectiveness of the vaccine to be. The data from Israel is informative, and there's some parallel data coming through from the UK, that the Pfizer vaccine, certainly after two doses, gives a very high level of protection, 90 95% plus, as shown in the trials. Of course, we'll have to see how it performs against the UK new variant, not the one in Bristol, but just the one which has been circulating for the last six, eight weeks in particular, but it's still likely to be highly, highly effective. There's a bigger question mark, obviously, around, just because we haven't seen the data yet, around the real-world effectiveness of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Seeing the data come through will be critical for making an assessment of the extent to which you know, those rules on people seeing each other can be relaxed. And what are your models telling you about which measures are much more likely to cause the virus to come surging back than others? Hopefully, if everything plays out like our best estimates would suggest it might, and there's a lot of uncertainty around those estimates, then by May timeframe, I think it's realistic to be in something akin to tier two. And maybe if there are areas with very low incidence by that time, moving even to tier one type measures, completely relaxing and moving back to something akin to where we were in August, which had some restrictions, but much lighter. That will really depend on how we see the earlier relaxations play out. We've tried national lockdowns. We've tried regionalised system as well. Does your model give you a view on whether the regionalised system, different restrictions, different areas, is effective enough to see that method coming back in the spring and summer? So it depends on what your objective is. The tier system was aimed really at keeping incidents, numbers of cases per day below a certain level. And so it was really being driven mostly by how many cases 
per day different areas were seeing. I think we've learned some lessons from that, that the strategy we really need to adopt to avoid potentially very large epidemics is to keep the R number below one, which is a rather different objective. So I think as long as we've learned that lesson, if there are areas where clearly R is well below one, despite having relaxed to a certain degree, then those areas might be able to go further. So we may end up in a regionalised approach. It's not certain by any means, but it'll hopefully be driven by different criteria than we had before. And does your modelling give you a view on how much tightening the borders will help? This is something the government's largely resisted compared to many other countries around the world until now. And and, and this week we're seeing, and next week, much, much stricter measures coming in. There's two ways a variant can arrive in this country or be present in this country. One is through importation and certainly restrictions on travel or quarantine measures help in reducing that risk. It's difficult to eliminate it altogether if you want to have any travel at all. The second way it can arise is just through mutation in this country. And we unfortunately now have a variant which is basically only one or two mutations away from the sort of characteristics the South African and Brazilian variants have. I mean, I think there's a balancing act in, in everything. I think the risks of a variant arising here, which can in some sense partially escape the vaccine, reduce the effectiveness of the vaccine, are at least as great, if not greater, than the risk of us importing the Brazilian or South African strains. So I think whilst border measures will help to a degree, they're certainly not a panacea. Should we be surprised that the virus has started to mutate in the way that it has, seemingly becoming more transmissible and increasingly resistant to vaccines? We shouldn't be at all surprised about viruses mutating, Um, particularly the RNA class of viruses, which this coronavirus is part of, mutate constantly. And that's just because they have error-prone replication. And there's another factor which is important in making the difference between just random mutation and evolution is that the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus which causes COVID, has only been in the human population, we think, for a bit of now over a year, maybe 18 months in total. And it almost certainly came from an animal reservoir, even if we haven't identified it. So whilst in that original animal reservoir, it may have been perfectly adapted and reached its maximum transmissibility. In humans, it clearly hasn't. But there are biological limits. It can't go on forever. The maximum R value probably any virus has ever achieved is 10 to 15, which is something like measles virus, for instance. Currently, this virus is at an R0 basic reproduction number of about five. So potentially it could go further, but we we just don't know. The second selection pressure, which has not been an important one until the current time on viruses, and we see this in flu, is to escape immunity. Normally, for viruses circulating in the human population, they're in what's called endemic like influenza viruses. And so a large proportion of the population at any one time is immune. So there's a big advantage to a new mutation causing that virus to escape the immunity, not be affected by it. We're starting to enter that phase for uh, SARS-CoV-2 for COVID, partly because a larger portion of the population has been naturally infected. And we think that might be up to a third of the UK population now, certainly 30% or so. 
but partly because we're rolling out vaccines. I think a lot of people, well, I guess I mean me, spent most of last year thinking and certainly hoping that once we had vaccines and they worked, we'd all get jabs and basically the pandemic would be over. You know, it would be a bad dream and we move on with our lives. This prospect of constant mutations was obviously always there, but perhaps not always appreciated by everyone. Does that suggest, what, that it will never really be over? I think it's highly unlikely we will ever eradicate this virus from the human population. It's going to become an endemic coronavirus, which means it'll circulate probably every year, every few years in every country of the world. What we can do is what we've done with influenza viruses, is make that a manageable prospect. It will cause hospitalizations, it will cause deaths, but we can drive them down to much lower levels by routine immunization. It's too early to say how frequent that vaccination will need to be. It may not be annual like we do with flu, it may be on a two-year time frame, but that is the goal. I mean, to make this a disease which is manageable through normal measures like vaccination rather than through extraordinary measures like social distancing. Is it possible, though, that even once the whole population broadly is vaccinated, we'll still need to maintain some of the habits and the rules we've had to learn this past year, the mask wearing, keeping our distance from one of the rules at mass gatherings? Could all that be here to stay at least, you know, well beyond 2021? Critically depends on how effective the vaccines are, how long immunity generated by those vaccines lasts and the really unpredictable thing of whether there are new variants which pop up, which have very different characteristics. My best guess is, though, my fervent hope is certainly by this time next year, we will be basically back to normal. I mean, without any significant degree of of the current controls in place, whether we maintain uh, bits of them will be partly a political decision and, and might partly depend on on the situation in other areas of the world. But there is a lot of uncertainty around that. Is it possible or at all likely that a strain emerges which effectively sends us right back to square one, or even worse, that can't actually be vaccinated against at all? I think it's very unlikely we'll get a strain emerging which can't be vaccinated against. Um, will we get a strain which sends us back to square one? I also... I. We can't be sure of that. It would require changes in the virus to basically completely escape current antibodies, which is, I'm told, probably unlikely to happen. It's more likely we'll get gradual changes which partially escape immunity than one big change, but it can't be completely ruled out. Sounds to me like you're pretty hopeful that this really could be the final lockdown. I'm hopeful it will be the final lockdown so long as we are relatively cautious in coming out of this lockdown, I would say. If we relax too quickly without seeing the effect of each stage of relaxation, we may do what we've done before and and relax too much, see a surge in case numbers and still need to tighten up measures again. There's also another issue here that the timing of relaxation is intricately tied up with the rollout of vaccine. The faster we can roll out vaccine, the higher the proportion of the population is immunised, the faster we can relax measures safely. And just finally, does the fact that we are rolling out vaccine so wonderfully well in this country compared to others, the fact that other countries are clearly doing it much less quickly, does that mean border controls could actually be the thing that outlast many of the other measures that we're seeing at the moment? 
Yes. I mean, I think some degree of whether it's border measures in terms of quarantine or whether it's border measures in terms of requiring vaccination certificates, I suspect those will persist for longer because unfortunately the rest of the world, particularly low and middle income countries, are going to be many months, if not years, behind the UK in terms of getting high levels of vaccination coverage. So just as one needs a yellow fever vaccine certificate to go to many countries in the world, it may become routine to have a requirement for a COVID vaccination certificate. You're listening to Westminster Insider. In the second part of the interview, I'll be asking Professor Ferguson about his regrets over how the pandemic was dealt with last year and about the criticism and the threats he receives because of his work. Stay with us. If you're enjoying Jack's podcast so far, you might want to try another political podcast, EU Confidential. It's the number one European politics podcast with analysis every week from political reporters in Brussels, Berlin, Paris and around the continent. Just search for EU Confidential wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe today. Now, Professor, I want to take you back 12 months to early February 2020, a completely different world to the one we're living in now. The spread of this new virus in Asia, its arrival in the UK was becoming bigger and bigger news at that point. But people in this country were basically going about their business largely as before. And you were one of the first people on broadcast warning about what was coming. I remember listening to you on the Today programme saying that we're on the verge, you thought of a global pandemic. Do you look back on those weeks in early February now with regret? Could you have shouted louder? Should we in the media and politicians have been paying closer attention? Yes, it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, today, as we record this, is the exact anniversary of us publishing our report on the what we estimated the lethality of this virus to be. And we basically said our estimate, which was very uncertain, was that 1% of people infected might die in a country such as the UK. And yes, I did go on the Today programme and got pushed rather by the presenters into saying, well, well, not disagreeing with that could you know, translate into you know, half a million deaths or whatever. There is always a balancing act between ringing the alarm bells and being alarmist. I've been criticised on both sides for, for both being alarmist and, and not not you know ring those bells loud enough um there are some things i regret i think i had a very clear view that it was my role as a scientific advisor not to tell government what to do for a policy but to say this is the potential impact of different policy options they were considering in a rather neutral sort of way it was only later in kind of beginning of march onwards that I and fellow scientists on SAGE started saying, well, you know, there is only really one policy option which is going to avoid the NHS being overwhelmed. And I do think about whether I could have been louder in saying that. It's, you know, the benefit of hindsight is a, is a wonderful thing. Indeed. Uh, it, it was a collective failure though, wasn't it? I mean, if you look at the SAGE minutes from those early weeks, January, February, time the politicians largely were following the scientific advice we had a pandemic plan that was lauded by the who it was just for the wrong sort of disease it was for flu 
I'm not even sure if it was following a pandemic plan, which was the issue. We didn't, I mean, occasionally we made reference to flu planning assumptions, but I think it was a caution, maybe an overly cautious attitude towards very uncertain data that we were seeing what was unfolding in China, but with only a partial perspective. And I think the wake-up call really came from from Italy and what happened then and seeing actually later, it's only actually into March, that lockdown could start to bring case numbers down. But I think maybe the key lesson from Italy was how quickly the health system could become overwhelmed. Now, the modelling had been saying that for weeks earlier, but I mean, some people are understandably cautious about modelling. And so seeing hospitals fill up first in Italy, then in Paris, then in London, I think across the continent was the thing which drove policy much more than what I as a modeler was saying to government. I mean, the modeling backed the decision, but I think it was that people felt they had to be sure. And unfortunately, that was the same this autumn. I mean, again, this last autumn, we all knew as epidemiologists, as modelers, that with growing case numbers, that would translate into hospitalisation and deaths again. But again, across Europe, it's not a particular criticism of this government in the UK. I think politicians felt that they could only act decisively once they actually saw that, unfortunately, translated to exponentially increasing hospitalisations and deaths. For me, there were sort of several moments in the course last year which felt like genuine game-changer moments, almost like an I-can-remember-where-I-was-when-this-happened moment. And one that really sticks in my mind is the Imperial College press briefing in mid-March when we were suddenly told that the sort of, if I can put it this way, the keep-calm-and-carry-on strategy the government had been pursuing was basically disastrously misguided, warning of the sort of quarter-of-a-million deaths if the approach of mitigation was continued. A report said this conclusion had only been reached in the last few days. I'm wondering, did you have your own game-changer moment at some point in early March where you were sat looking at a computer and just went, you know, oh my God, what we're doing here is completely wrong? I don't think it was a moment. It was a realisation which dawned over really a period of about 10 days. There was a meeting on the 1st of March, Sunday. We hosted at Imperial with colleagues from London School, but also more importantly, colleagues from NHS England, to come up with our best estimate planning assumptions for what the impact of the pandemic might be in the UK in a variety of scenarios in terms of hospital demand and bed demand. And the outcome of that meeting suggested yes, overwhelming pressures on the NHS if a purely mitigation strategy was adopted. I mean, that was then adopted by SAGE as a reasonable worst case planning assumption. I mean, I always thought it was the kind of most likely scenario, but it's always a diversity of views. But it did take, obviously, it took more time to kind of sink into the policy community as to what that necessarily implied. I was fairly convinced by about, I've got to be careful here not to rewrite history, I would say by something like the 10th of March, because we were getting through a little bit of data from the UK NHS, which suddenly started to show 
that the UK epidemic was a lot further along than we'd anticipated. Basically, we've been testing the wrong people, which is something John Edmonds and myself banged on about quite a bit at the time. It took a long time to set up sentinel surveillance and comprehensive surveillance in hospitals. But as soon as we did, we realised that there were getting many more people hospitalised with COVID than we'd ever realised and probably dying. Some people will not have been diagnosed at that time. And that meant we had to act much faster. And so that week of, what was it, the 8th to 13th of March, was a very intense and stressful week, certainly, in terms of SAGE and the interaction with government and shifting the position. And eventually the position did shift. And you've said before how much better it would have been if it shifted sooner. I just wondered at the time, did you fully realise the implications of what that report would mean? You know, British society had never in however many thousand years been locked down like that before. Did you realise what it meant, what you were saying? Yes, we were always very conscious that, I mean, lockdown would have enormous social and economic impacts and some form of it or some form of significant social distancing would likely need to be in place until we were able to vaccinate most of the population. I mean, what we modelled in that report was intermittent lockdown. What actually happened was a sort of variant on that and gradual relaxation and then gradual reimposition and then two additional full lockdowns. But, I mean, it was an inevitable consequence of the epidemiology of this virus to some extent. The other big game-changer moment early in the year was the Dominic Cummings-Barnard Castle episode, which obviously did a lot of damage to the sort of all-in-it-together message. And you'd had to resign yourself for breaking lockdown rules a few weeks earlier. What was it like to watch that play out? You must have had intensely mixed feelings, I'd imagine. Well, I was said, yeah, I mean, I, I deeply regret my own actions. I don't think they were can be directly compared with those of Dominic Cummings, um, both in terms of risk, but also motivation. And I mean, I think... Yes, I think my feelings were mixed. I think there's a big difference between completely losing one's job, as it were, and and stepping down from an advisory committee. But equally, I think there's a big difference between being a government civil servant and an unpaid advisor to government. So that's probably all I want to say about it. I mean, I, I didn't feel particularly gung-ho about saying he must go. But I, there was some dancing on the head of a pin in terms of justifying the actions. And I know you've spoken extensively about uh, your own actions. I don't need to go into that again. But I just wondered, as you look back, do you feel like your own mistake played into that wider corrosive message that it's one rule for them, one rule for everyone else? I think as I stated on my statement that day, the Telegraph story came out, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it almost certainly did to some extent. I mean, I made a judgment based on risk which is exactly the wrong thing to do and it does imply yes that exceptionalism um kind of the metropolitan elite do one set of things and everybody else is expected to do another and that's i mean i deeply regret that and i think it's the wrong message to send you've obviously taken a huge amount of criticism publicly for your work from a small but very vocal group of scientists, MPs, pundits, basically for recommending the suppression strategy in the way you have. I want to just play you a couple of short clips from a couple of your more vocal critics so that you have the opportunity to properly respond to them, if I may. First, we have Professor Carol Sikora, 
who I know you know well, speaking just a couple of days after you published that big report in March. If you take data and you ask epidemiologists and mathematicians to come up with various models, they'll produce the worst case model. It certainly has spooked our leaders. Tory MP, former Cabinet Minister David Davis, speaking in November. This is actually quite a scandal that the scientific advisers effectively put the Prime Minister in a no-win, no-choice position, when in fact he did have options available to him. And the last one, radio presenter, I'm going to call him a shock jock for this purpose, is Richard Madeley speaking at around the same time. His previous pandemic studies or models have been shown to be rubbish, absolute rubbish, as has this one. A lot of people say it looked as if it had been done on a 1960s computer. It was hopeless. Okay, so I'm sure I know you've heard all this stuff before. How do you respond to this basic criticism of of your, your life's work, if you like? I mean, I would say it's ideologically motivated criticism, a set of people who didn't like the conclusion and therefore yeah, attacked the messenger and the message. I mean, I mean, basically, it's rubbish. Um, I mean, none of the people you play, I would certainly call scientists or respected scientists. I think within the scientific community, there's been a remarkable degree of consensus. Government didn't make policy on the basis of our model alone, a completely different model, a simpler model, uh, written in February and March this year by the London School, came to identical conclusions. Numerous other models have come to identical conclusions, and you don't even need a very complicated model. You just need to know that this virus had the potential back then, still does, with the new variant of killing 1% of the people it infects in the UK. And it has a basic reproduction number in excess of three. And those two simple numbers lead with any model to predictions of an epidemic which will overwhelm the NHS. I mean, I think this is an example of, to some extent, what's called false balance. There has been a small minority of the scientific community which have been giving, let's say, contrarian views, just as there is a small minority in the climate science community who do that. But it is a small minority. I mean, there have been many thousands of scientists and clinicians advising government during this pandemic. And I think they would be equally appalled with those comments as I am. Some of the criticism of your approach has bordered on anti-science. Some of the comments I'm thinking of by the former president, Donald Trump, by the president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, calling the virus a hoax. How disturbing is it to you as the rise of this almost an anti-science movement in politics and, of course, on social media as well? It is concerning. Funnily enough, Donald Trump both called it a hoax and then claimed credit based on our modelling results for saving two million American lives. So it is more cherry picking what you want to believe and discarding things you don't want to believe. I think it's not even so much anti-science. It is anti-evidence or just the belief in alternate realities, which is highly toxic. You can see that playing out in the United States today. I desperately don't want the UK to go down the same path. Always allowing for the fact there's always 5% of the population who've believed in wild and wacky conspiracy theories. But when it gets to the 10, 20% level where you have you know, QAnon supporters in Congress, that is the position we don't want to be in. And we also saw the horrible video of Professor Chris Whitty being harangued in the street the other day by a COVID denier. Do you ever feel threatened for your own safety? I get some fairly unpleasant emails from time to time, typically, you know, with lots of QAnon rubbish attached to them. 
I've never quite felt physically threatened as yet, but there hasn't been much opportunity to. I mean, we're all locked down. Yes, there have been times this year where the level of abuse, I mean, I don't follow social media. I don't have the inclination and I don't have the time, but just in terms of emails received have been distressing. And it's even more distressing when my junior colleagues receive those emails. I mean, I've developed a fairly thick skin. So yes, it is it's understandable. I mean, people have really suffered in this pandemic. People have lost livelihoods, um, been had their mental health affected, you know, huge social disruption. So it's understandable that people want someone to blame. But I think the most regrettable thing about this trend towards populism is not being able to accept the fact that sometimes bad things happen due to complex reasons society is a complicated place the economy is a complicated place and reaching for oversimplistic answers which tend to involve blaming someone you must have thought being an infectious disease modeler would be obviously hugely important but pretty low profile work did you ever dream you'd end up being such a public figure and such a in fact such a divisive figure in some cases no not really it's not like i've had no media experience before. I mean, I was heavily involved in the swine flu pandemic and mad cow disease, foot and mouth disease epidemic. So, I mean, I've been relatively used to dealing with the media from time to time, but this has been another order of magnitude. And as for being a divisive figure, yeah, it still feels very surreal to me that there has been this, you know, non-evidence-based division in society which has arisen. And I'm, I'm rather happy to see it's rather declined in influence in recent months. But in some sense, unfortunately, having another 50,000 deaths has rather hushed those voices, at least for the moment. But it is a very regrettable thing. Have you at any point thought, you know what, this isn't worth it, the pressure, the stress of it, the hassle of it? Do you ever think that? No, because it is also rewarding to have an influence. And even talking myself personally, I mean, the centre I run has done a huge amount working on this pandemic, not just for the UK, but for the world. I'm very proud of my colleagues. I'm still very motivated by the science itself. You'd be surprised to hear that whilst I probably spend well, between six and eight hours on calls a day, I spend another three or four hours doing analysis and modelling myself. And it's what I love. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and leave a comment too, if you have the time. This episode was produced by Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions and our executive producer is Politico's Christina Gonzalez. I'll be back next week as usual. And in the meantime, do please check out our past episodes if you haven't done so already.